0: Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Parker Lewis, head of business development at Unchained Capital. We talk about one of the greatest lies about money out there, how incentives are misaligned in the financial system, and how Bitcoin changes the management of money. Parker also tells us his story of how he learned about the Fed and Bitcoin coming from a background of investment banking at Deutsche Bank.
1: Parker Lewis, how are you doing? Doing well. Good to, good to be in person here yeah. at Unchained Capital.
0: <laughs> yeah, how, how has life been for you the last few months?
1: I really think you know, Austin in general has remained, like, fairly normal, but, uh, you know, effectively March 12th, coinciding with Bitcoin's drastic volatility, we essentially went from a non-remote company to a remote company, and so it, 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 has, it has felt a little bit isolating, um, but, you know, kind of all things considered and keeping things in perspective, we're feeling, you know, fairly lucky to be working in the Bitcoin world given everything that's going on in the world Mm. because of the setup but then also we are able to work remotely and there's a lot of people who who you know don't have that ability and have been impacted by this so while it has kind of caused adjustments definitely kind of trying to think of things in perspective and, and and lucky to be you know in the position where we are
0: yeah no doubt about that there's a there's so many people that are like uh, you know thinking about their jobs and careers and things like that and I, I can't imagine what they're going through uh, but speaking of that what what's your background uh, what did you study what led you to where you are now I guess
1: so I studied economics in mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. and I, it was funny I because re- i I had the same thought and I, I saw mm-hmm. a tweet yesterday that mm-hmm. that talked about uh, Somebody had read the first couple chapters of Safe's book and basically said, and my whole college education has officially gone out the window. And that that was really kind of how I felt once I had met SAFE and not not just read the book but then started to think about monetary economics. So Mm. studied economics in school but don't really feel like I got an education until I got into Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, After school, ended up going and working for an investment bank, working for Deutsche Bank in and around the financial crisis from Mm. 2006 to 2009, which was an interesting period Mm -hmm. to be there specifically. Then left investment banking, worked in restructuring, so a lot of creditor side workout. Mm-hmm. Um, understood the, you know, not just the credit system, but more so kind of how to to work out debt when it um, when it kind of defaults and becomes bad, and then help mm. really rehab companies that were in bankruptcy. Mm. Ultimately, ended up joining a hedge fund thereafter, focused mm. on distressed credit, but really then global macro, and started understanding really a lot about global macro landscape, interest rates, currencies, Mm -hmm. and that's really where I spent a lot of time, Mm -hmm. um, even though I had worked for an investment bank Mm -hmm. and and, and probably I think the most globally systemic bank in the world, in Deutsche Bank, but didn't really understand what was happening in the financial crisis around me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was just out of school, and when I was working for a hedge fund in Dallas, really started going back and understanding the fed and qe and then understanding the implications of what would then happen when the fed began to unwind the balance sheet Mm. and that was kind of in and around the time that i was also learning about bitcoin so Mm. Traditional financial services a background, economics in school, and now kind of I feel like Bitcoin has re-educated me on more things than just money.
0: Well, that, that's interesting because uh, you you had to go back and study despite having learned all that. What what led you down that rabbit hole of uh, figuring out what the Fed does and how they um, you know put money on their balance sheets and things like that?
1: I'd say it's really twofold. One piece. Serendipitous, and then Mm. then the other side just a function of my job Mm. um, working for a hedge fund. Mm. Um, The first side was I was asked specifically to go do diligence on a company, Mm. on a gold company in Mm. Canada. Mm. And at that time, I kind of was aware of what Bitcoin was, but the Mm. company was called BitGold. And I reached out to our friend Will Cole, who's Mm. now uh, working here at Unchained (laughs) with us, and asked him whether or not it had anything to do with Bitcoin because it talked about, you know, the name was BitGold and it Mm. talked uh, about blockchain mm-hmm. um and will ultimately connected me with safe because mm-hmm. he after he looked at it for just a, a hot second told me that it had nothing to do with bitcoin but he mm-hmm. you know knew mm-hmm. somebody that knew a lot about monetary economics and gold so i was able to meet safe and then also um the act the two co-founders at that bit gold they were also kind of very knowledgeable about monetary economics and, and it really just opened up a, a whole kind of world view mm-hmm. or Maybe worldview is not the right way to say it, but mm. just a side of economics that I had never considered, and so mm. that really piqued in you know kind of intellectual curiosity mm. in, in something within the field that I was theoretically educated on, but had never really engaged in. At that same time, um, it was 2016 mm. timeframe or early 2016. The the Federal Reserve had started to signal that you know it had already begun to to raise short term interest rates. Mm. But it it hadn't yet begun to unwind its balance sheet and essentially attempt to undo what it had done in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And one of the key focuses of of what I was doing at Hayman Capital at the time the the firm had kind of shifted its focus. It had always been doing global macro, but it was doing a lot more global macro investing. Mm. And you know, kind of you know, so many people key off uh, around what the Fed is going to do and how that's going to impact financial markets. And as I was Trying to to you know distill down kind of what my expectations were from the least common denominator, mm-hmm. centering around what happens when the Fed unwinds its balance sheet. Mm-hmm. The best place to start would be to be what you know. I, w- I was thinking of it as a reverse order of operations of when they did QE. Mm. So in order for me to think about that, I felt like I needed to understand realistically at a, at a root level what happened kind mm. of on the way in to be able to, to have some informed perspective of what would happen on the way out.
0: Mm. That's, a, that's so interesting because you, you worked in banking for so long and then it took you many years into your career before you actually got around to understanding what the Fed actually does and how they operate.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that's really because you know if you think about anybody mm-hmm. you know, think about Deutsche Bank as a company mm-hmm. when I was working in investment banking it's an eighty thousand or was an eighty thousand person company mm-hmm. I was working in the mergers and acquisitions group mm-hmm. evaluating single transactions albeit they were large transactions mm-hmm. but working in in I don't want to say a small corner of the bank but l- l- working in one specialized function within the bank mm. um, and not necessarily also being at that time just out of college mm-hmm. you have far fewer world experiences, <laughs> kind of kind of being thrown to the wolves. It's kind of baptism mm-hmm. by fire, essentially. And so you're trying to figure out just kind of the one thing that it is you're doing, and that really restricts your ability just on the one hand by experience, but on the other hand just uh, a skill set to really being able to understand the full picture. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, if I look back on my history, it was really you know, Deutsche Bank, I was understanding how to value companies, how to uh, Mm. review financial statements. In restructuring, I was really kind of understanding more about how to run businesses and particularly running businesses that had defaulted on debt or Mm -hmm. needed their balance sheet restructured. And then it was really not until Heyman where, because it was uh, in many ways global macro focused, Mm. to be able to step back and look at the system as a whole. Mm. um, Because when you're, you know, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. And if you're focused on one area of a bank or doing one specific function, you don't necessarily, um, you know, in the day-to-day function of your job, understand how it's kind of impacting a market as a whole. Or if you were to kind of add 10 banks together and look at how they're all operating, what the kind of system level risk would look. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of those, you know, a corollary to that would be somebody that's writing mortgages that contributed to the mortgage crisis. They probably had no idea kind of they're sitting writing individual mortgages they don't necessarily know how they're being packaged up into uh, oh. mortgage-backed securities or then how people are writing derivatives off them so it's very easy to, to to be lost in the weeds when you're doing specific functions and it really requires abstracting up to a higher level to then and, and really think about it because when I was I it, you know it's probably an overused analogy but it really was like peeling back layers of the onion like mm. trying to really understand QE, it led to a lot of well, what, you know, what was that? Specifically? <laughs> you know, and then you had, it's like a whole nother rabbit hole. And it, and it ultimately mm-hmm. led me to the point of thinking about the credit system as a whole, thinking mm-hmm. about leverage in terms of the amount of debt that's in the system versus actually the amount of dollars and, and really understanding, okay, why is it that QE, like it's impossible for the Fed not to, to get into the situation where they're Putting more money into the system because the whole the whole purpose of QE is to expand the credit system, and in my mm. view, that is the source of the problem. Mm. So, mm. Um, it is kind of in certain ways interesting, and I kind of. View it in many ways as coming full circle, having worked at Deutsche Bank in the crisis, <laughs> to then, you know, effectively 10 years later, really spending the time to go back to understand what was happening around time.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that it, you, you had to learn everything despite having been in the industry for so long. What made you get into the investment banking industry in the first place?
1: No better explanation than herd mentality. I'd say. <laughs> you know, I I went to school at Duke, and a lot of people go from Duke to investment banking, uh-huh. and um, you know, there there was some appeal to, to, to going and working on Wall Street mm-hmm. and in New York, and so it was kind of not not necessarily having a clear vision of what I wanted to do for the next ten years or twenty mm-hmm. years, and it was mm-hmm. a kind of good place to um, get in the action and learn, uh, mm-hmm. learn a core skill set. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a, a grand plan when I decided to, to do it, other than uh, I knew I would learn a lot um, and that you know it would be good experience that I could leverage thereafter. But uh, one, once I was, it, I really people asked me like, "Hey, would you go do investment banking?" Mm-hmm. You know, I would say, "I'm glad that I did it, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't recommend it to other people." <laughs> essentially. So,
0: uh, so why why yeah. is that? Why why wouldn't you recommend other people?
1: It, you know now. A decade later (laughs) it's easy to look back on and and say hey you know I'm glad I had done it but you know on the other side I think a lot of people and I I was recently listening to a um, a podcast that Elon Musk did with Joe Rogan Mm. where he he made the comment that too many of our and I I prefer to myself Mm -hmm. self referentially as smart but too many of our resources essentially go into banking and Mm. and uh, and law Mm. and that I think that it would be be far more productive, you know, like Mm. things actually have to be made in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, like people make things. And so I I think looking back, um, I did learn a lot, got a lot of great experience, but it would, you know, probably people's time would be better served after actually like, you know, focusing in on something that they're passionate about, you know, having an actual skill and building a product or building a service or offering a service that more tangibly provides other people some amount of, um, you know, kind of, value in the world beyond kind of moving so
0: that's interesting because you're you're sort of suggesting that banking and law and things like that they're kind of zero-sum games in a way like you you have you're not actually producing goods right getting that right
1: I, well i would say that like there's certainly value in banking mm-hmm. there's certainly value in mm-hmm. the law i think that there's a limitation of that where mm-hmm. the more that you're financially engineering the mm-hmm. there's just diminishing marginal returns and mm-hmm. so there is there is some value in being able to allocate capital mm-hmm. and know how to say, you know, person A has a project that they need to build and mm-hmm. person B has capital and, and putting them together. I think mm-hmm. that, the, that there is some inherent level of value to that. But I think, um, and I don't have the number specifically, but if the financial services world consumes like 16% of GDP, mm-hmm. it's like, what is the right number? But like mm. that's probably like far too high of a, of a number. I don't, you know, have the, Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not all knowing, so I don't know what the, what the right number is, but I do know that, you know, when you think about the things that you consume and that the things that tangibly make, you know, your life better or my life better, they're different things, but they're, they're more tangible objects that exist in the world that we actually consume or the houses that we live in, the cars that we drive, those type mm-hmm. of things. And that, and that there's a, uh, an inherent limitation to the point of probably being not just, um, not productive, but being counterproductive to spending so much time and energy, you know, financially and engineering the world rather than actually being in the world and producing goods and
0: services. Are, are you suggesting that banking is bloated?
1: I, I would say that once you start to understand the, the size of the credit system, mm-hmm. that there's there's kind of. No other conclusion that you could come to that mm-hmm. the system would not be as large as it is, mm-hmm. if not for centralization and the function of the Fed to allow it to exist that way. Mm-hmm. And that in, a, in, a, in an unmanipulated world, the, that, that sector would naturally be small.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so... You're suggesting that it is kind of bloated, but there's obviously tons and tons of people that work in banking. How did they sort of justify what they're doing? Because in a sense, if it is bloated, then a lot of those people are really just taking love from other people.
1: Well, I mean, I think if I was to, to mm-hmm. simplify it, it mm-hmm. would be in certain ways they are delivering Mm -hmm. some value Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's you know kind of like okay well how much value is derived from capital allocation Mm -hmm. and financial engineering Mm -hmm. versus you know manufacturing some Mm -hmm. good or providing Mm -hmm. you know some software service Mm -hmm. and and really at a root level Mm -hmm. money is supposed to be the arbiter that helps People communicate preferences in the world, and, mm-hmm. and allows an economy mm-hmm. to essentially allocate resources. That, sure. that the money's, and that in a world where you're manipulating the money supply, and that it effectively mm-hmm. becomes a, a debt or credit-driven money supply, mm-hmm. that your you know, the money is communicating preferences that it otherwise wouldn't be, um, and and that people are in certain ways rationally acting on signals that say. Mm-hmm. If I perform this function, I get rewarded in this amount of money. Mm. So I'm going to go pursue that as an activity. Mm. You know, in that, in that sense, it's rational. People are reacting to price signals and incentives. Mm. I think that there's a fundamental question that was: if the the Fed didn't exist, and if banks didn't get bailouts, mm. and if we didn't live in a world of monetary expansion, that the the pricing functions to and the incentive mechanisms to to pay people certain Amounts of money for a perceived value that's being delivered in the world would be fundamentally different, such that that you know, they would they would be reacting to a different set of pricing mechanisms that were or a different pricing mechanism that would essentially. Be more true, or mm. have the least amount of distortion in it, and mm. naturally they would say, "Oh well, I can, I can actually be paid more to, to performing a different function because these are the preferences of, of that economy." Mm. Um, so I don't, th- I don't think of it as a world as like, you know, people are just, you know, in the banking <laughs> sector are just taking other people as well. They're rationally responding to price signals that are rewarding certain types of behavior, but it's mm. a function of a manipulated money supply that that's creating those incentives in that way Mm. and that if that didn't exist they'd likely be doing something else and that there would be other functions to perform based on a different kind of preference set Mm. in an omnipotent
0: so what what is the problem of incentive here why 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 is it that so many people are motivated to become investment bankers or you know 16 percent of gdp goes into banking what what's what's the wrong Mm -hmm. signal that's being sent what's the what's the problem in banking
1: I, I think the root of it is that there's a and not on an individual mm. level, but at a at a system level that then feeds mm. down into mm. banks and then the people that run those banks and then mm-hmm. kind of trickle down to individuals within those banks is that mm. you you have a system that inherently has a massive amount of it. Mm. so you know, we saw it in, in two thousand eight where you know we essentially the Fed In early 2008, reduced interest rates, Mm -hmm. I think seven or eight times, all the way to zero. And then they did QE, but then there was also um, the TARP program Mm -hmm. and and the bank bailouts, Mm -hmm. bank bailouts and AIGs. So when you you have banks that are essentially taking risks that they otherwise shouldn't be, and then they're not penalized for that, Mm -hmm. and that they're bailed out, that there becomes an expectation um, that... That same type of activity will occur. Mm. And when you have that expectation, then you take risks that you otherwise wouldn't. And that's essentially. Mm. So when you, you know, if I was to explain that on a micro level, Mm. someone does a real estate transaction Mm. and there's probably seven percentage points of that real estate transaction that goes to real estate fees and mortgage fees, right? And Mm. so um, if you have a housing sector that's inherently propped up by the you know easy access to credit where people are you know when they're buying a home they're not really buying the home they're putting 10 to 20 percent down and then a bank's mm-hmm. providing funding of 80 percent that you know that six to seven percent of money that get gets raked off of value mm-hmm. of real estate ultimately trickles down to many different functions within that supply chain getting people more mm. and so you know like if we if we then start from that root level of an individual mortgage to people then packaging mortgage-backed securities, Mm -hmm. the amount of mortgages that exist in the world wouldn't exist to the level that they do if there wasn't cheap access to credit. Mm -hmm. So the pricing pricing mechanism or the pricing signal is, hey, if I perform this mortgage function, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I'll be rewarded Mm -hmm. handsomely. Now, the individual at the bottom layer, they don't necessarily know that it's all enabled by the fact that the Fed is providing cheap access to credit for the banks for that to exist. Mm -hmm. But if it didn't, then the value of say real estate relative to all other functions in the economy will be lower, such that the kind of reward for performing that function would be different and people would be more likely to pursue a different Mm -hmm. activity rather than what it is doing, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, so you're suggesting basically that banking functions have a much higher um, reward And because of the easy credit something like that which
1: yeah I I would say that uh, the the value of financial assets the value of real estate all of them are propped up disproportionately as a function of the credit system the credit system is the size that it is exclusively I don't want to say exclusively it is principally driven through the functions of the Fed Um, and that each time that credit system and the value of financial a- assets tries to contract, the Fed takes actions to to reverse that course mm-hmm. and to allow the incentive structure to, to be maintained rather than to be reset. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, every every economic ex- incentive becomes a derivative of the, the ultimately the value of those assets. And so, if the Fed through his actions of QE and, and monetary debasement are propping those up that naturally goes down to certain you know certain sectors particularly advantaged by banking. Mm. So it's it's hard to unpackage and to, to to drive it all the way down to individual decision points, but it is easier to abstract to that highest level to say, okay, well if this World didn't exist. Would the incentive structure go away with it? Mm. I think my conclusion. Okay,
0: what well, what makes investment banking so profitable? It, I mean, can you really tie it back to the Fed's uh, monetary policy?
1: I w- like, well, I wouldn't restrict all that the banks do to mm-hmm. investment banking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, but I would say, like, you know, holistically, if you look at kind of a global. Mm-hmm. Investment bank or global bank, mm-hmm. and they do investment banking and they do mm-hmm. sales and trading, where mm-hmm. they're trading you know, stocks on behalf of you know individuals that hold stocks in in their investment accounts or for pension funds um, to to equity research to a more commercial side of banking, which is financing real estate. Mm-hmm. That all of those functions are kind of in aggregate, you know, materially advantaged via the Fed providing cheap access mm. so if i was thinking about investment banking specifically of how say how it's if i was to to you know lay out a few economic factors it's mm-hmm. you know, in march when the, the the value of the stock market started mm-hmm. to collapse um you know, so investment banking generally charges fees like say mm-hmm. if i was doing a, mer- a mergers and acquisition transaction mm-hmm. two companies that are worth Five billion dollars combined, and then mm-hmm. investment bank at one percent. Wow. Well, um, and and obviously they don't just you know if it's a fifty billion dollar transaction, it's not still one percent. There's some you know kind of
0: mm-hmm. wiggle room, know, yeah. You
1: know, wiggle room where um, the basis points come down, but the overall reward goes up. Uh-huh. You know essentially in terms of the fees. Well, say the stock market's collapsing. Say a, a company that was worth five billion dollars, mm-hmm. you know, one day, if the Fed didn't come in and support those financial assets via QE, well, if those, say, what if those companies were only worth a billion dollars? You know, what's 1% of a billion dollars versus 1% of 5 billion? Mm. Or if you combine the two companies, what's 1% of 2 billion versus 10? Mm -hmm. So the the type of assets that are disproportionately benefited from the function of QE Mm -hmm. are anything that's dependent on the credit system, which are principally financial assets, but it's not just bonds, it's stocks and bonds. Mm. Um, And so you can think about it in a micro world of individually kind of how certain incentive structures can be manipulated because in the world where the stock market's crashing, anything that's a derivative of that and particularly Mm. anything that's transactional around that is Mm. an impact. The same time that the the stock market was collapsing, the credit market was collapsing. Mm. So the value of bonds was declining in value. So anybody that's feeing off of lower asset values Mm. Becomes impacted in a negative way, and that when the Fed takes the course of what it did in March, April, May, you know, into June, then you know it disproportionately benefits the those people that either hold financial assets or those that are facilitating financial transactions that are tied to asset value.
0: Mm. Yeah, so I mean, it kind of sounds like the investment bankers like asset inflation because they can charge those fees and so on. And over the past couple of decades, assets have gone through the roof. So they they seem to be making a lot of money off of that.
1: I, I'd say that's true. It probably mm-hmm. goes further than that. Mm-hmm. If you go, if you look back to the financial crisis, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that now are are thinking about Bitcoin and and kind of the consequences of a fixed supply currency and Mm -hmm. a currency that can be manipulated and debased. And and you see a lot of people talking about the expansion of the wealth gap. Mm. That, yes, anybody that is deriving a source of income off of financial assets or the Mm. credit system are benefited. But more generally, anybody that had assets Mm. in 2008 Mm -hmm. versus those did not disproportionately benefit. So when we think about the increasing divide in terms of of that wealth gap, I could really simplify it down to the people that had assets versus mm-hmm. the people that didn't. So like say you were coming into the economy mm-hmm. in 2008, if you already had assets, you were effectively bailed out or if you were a company that derived income mm-hmm. based on the size of the credit system or the value of financial assets, you disproportionately benefited. And if I was thinking about that in the micro world, think about somebody coming out of you know college, mm-hmm. you know around the time that I did, or, or you know the younger generation. Well, the value of uh, of real estate is you know propped up. So if you wanna if you wanna get a mortgage, you you know maybe the value of a I think the median value of a single family home was three hundred thousand. If the Fed didn't come in and manipulate it, maybe that would have been two hundred thousand. Now it's three hundred and fifty thousand. so mm-hmm. when you think about the amount of income you have to generate to be able to then buy a house you know a lot a much larger share of your income would have to go to it so mm-hmm. um, I, don't, I don't think it's some evil scheme that the Fed sits around and thinks about ways that they can screw over poor people mm-hmm. um, and advantage banks and anybody that's that's really plugged into the, the credit system but that is the ultimate. Consequence of the structure of the system.
0: The system seems to be trying to perpetuate like a a false stability, if you will, right? Like it's always sort of trying to keep the status quo going. Is that how? What what's motivating all of these incentives?
1: I think so. So Mm. if we just think about the Fed's mandate Mm. expressly, which is price stability and and full employment, Mm. uh, which I think we would both agree that. That having a central bank have a mandate of full employment sounds a lot like social engineering, and, and just feels like a fool's errand. I Man, mm-hmm. like how can a couple of people sitting around deciding to print money mm-hmm. be able to uh, achieve a you know greater employment because the operation of printing money by definition <laughs> doesn't create anything in, mm-hmm. in the real world, and that people do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know ultimately they are trying to achieve short-term stability. And the consequence of that is that they don't tolerate volatility or price discovery. Mm. And it's actually that price discovery or volatility that is communicating a shift in preferences or communicating where imbalances exist that, that mm. need to be um, resolved before an economy can start growing again. So I think about it as they are trying to, they have a mandate to achieve quote, price stability, mm. which in their world means devaluing the U.S. dollar 2% a year. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was to, to really key in on what they're doing, it is in order to, to maintain some price level stability, they have to maintain the size of the credit system mm. um, because the system is so financially levered. Mm. Um, so whether it's auto loans, credit card debt, mortgage debt, the, the credit system is is many, mul- is many multiples larger than the base money supply. Mm. So in order to maintain, quote, price stability, they have to maintain the price or the size of the credit system. Essentially, what they're doing is maintaining the size of the credit system to maintain the asset prices more generally, mm. because if they don't maintain that, then, quote, price stability can't be achieved. Mm. So ultimately, the consequence of that, in my view, is they are trying to achieve short-term stability mm-hmm. at the consequence of long-term volatility. Like mm-hmm. Essentially, they're suppressing volatility that exists and the market is trying to reset or mm-hmm. adjust to, to eliminate imbalance. Mm-hmm. And the Fed, knowingly or unknowingly, I'd say, probably... Unknowingly, mm-hmm. that they just don't understand it. They're not seeing the field clearly. Mm-hmm. They're suppressing that volatility that already exists, and it causes for greater blowups. Mm-hmm. And that's what we saw in two thousand eight, and that's also what we saw. In-
0: mm. Wow. So that th- this is all so crazy because if you think about it, like uh, you know, things are supposed to kind of change, and they're they're trying to suppress any sort of change from whatever it was. It sort of keeps them in power or something. I mean, do do you see a conspiracy here, or is it just sort of um, good intentions gone awry?
1: So I am a conspiracy theorist, no. <laughs> but on this one, uh-huh. I think it's more misguided mm-hmm. and. That they, again, you know, if I go back to my my schooling, mm. never really thinking about monetary economics. Like mm. if I if I, you know, not even say Austrian economics, just thinking mm. about money and what it is, and like mm-hmm. s- forming a baseline as to to whether or not you know, there's a world where you couldn't manipulate the money supply, and then mm-hmm. there's a world where you can, and what the consequences of those two worlds are. Mm. Going through school, and this is really kind of the if I was educated this way and I studied economics, then practically speaking, anybody who's going to a university in mm-hmm. the United States, like, they're only effectively taught one way. And it starts with a baseline that active mo- management of the money supply is good. Mm. So when you only are ever thinking about that world, you're n- you're never questioning the root level principle. Mm. And really, in, in not in a pejorative way, but, but what that results in is a central bank that's inherently made you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a monoculture, mm-hmm. not necessarily by design, but by definition. Mm-hmm. So if you thought about somebody that had an opposing view that said active management of the money supply is bad, mm-hmm. that person would effectively argue that the very existence of a central bank is not just obsolete, but that it actually causes harm. Mm-hmm. And so if you're working within a central bank, you effectively can't have that perspective <laughs> yeah. because you've already been trained and form the belief that it's good. Mm. So I think more realistically, it's a it's a, a group of people that have never con- considered that alternative, mm. truly, in terms of what are the consequences of the actions that we're taking. Mm. And one of the quotes that I often bring up that, that speaks to the psychology of the central bank, there's a quote from Bernanke, and I, I can't quote it mm-hmm. verbatim, but he, he effectively says, I'm willing to accept that uh, monetary policy or monetary policy solution is is not the 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 root problem Mm -hmm. and that it can't solve fiscal and structural problems in the Mm -hmm. economy Mm -hmm. but we have to be palliative essentially Mm -hmm. i can accept that i'm not the solution but i still have to do something (laughs) which is which is a crazy way to think but that you know in a in a non-greater conspiracy world and in a more innocent way Mm -hmm. that is their psychology Mm -hmm. that Okay, if if the world is seemingly burning mm-hmm. around me, I have to be doing something because if I did nothing, then people would, you know,
0: blame me. They'd blame me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Whereas not doing anything is sometimes the right answer. Mm. And and I think on a fundamental perspective, you know, and I and I think it's easy to th- it's easier to think about in, in micro examples, but say when I see the stock market crashing, I look at it as saying the 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 economy the people that make up the economy are changing their preferences. They're saying, "I would rather have dollars. I need mm-hmm. dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't want to own the financial asset." And then that's actually the economy and the pricing mechanism working, mm. saying, "You know, they're communicating their preferences." What effectively happens when the Fed comes in to put in QE? They're basically saying, "Hey, you, the economy, you're wrong, <laughs> and I'm going to give you the dollars so that even though you're saying that you need more dollars, I'm going to give them to you." So uh-huh. that you can still you can have you know, your cake and eat it too, mm. um, but that ultimately changing prices is the economy you know in, in certain ways restructuring, but the individuals that make up that economy communicating a change in preferences, mm. and that if you don't allow that function to happen in an undistorted way, you naturally get price levels that exist in ways that they wouldn't otherwise mm. um, would in a in an unmanipulated mm. and it doesn't just Change the pricing of housing in many places, all prices, but effectively because prices don't adjust on a pro rata basis, mm-hmm. it structurally changes the economy mm-hmm. in, in a way that it wouldn't exist in you know if not for that act of providing more dollars to certain sectors of the economy others, mm-hmm. um, and that that ultimately coming back to the, the base question of mm-hmm. kind of how the or maybe two questions ago in terms of the you know kind of the mentality of the Fed, they're maintaining short term stability at the consequence of long-term volatility, but they're also f- structurally changing the economy through, you know, how it is and and what, you know, the, the reason why they're providing more dollars mm-hmm. in terms of the objective that they think that they're achieving. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just say, okay, you know, home prices are going to go up by 20% now because we're going to advantage, mm-hmm. you know, a sector of the economy that r- relies more heavily on cheap access to credit. More people then go figure out how to build homes mm-hmm. than they otherwise would in that yeah. world. And, and that structural change... Is much more pervasive than just like oh prices need to come down twenty percent because they're too high. It's like no, you're creating um, structural imbalances in you know that would otherwise not be able to be sustained if you weren't causing false signals to be sent to people by constantly screwing with the money.
0: Hmm. So I mean you're you're now into Bitcoin and you've been studying it for a while. Um, at, since you've learned all this, how do you think that stuff changes as we go into a more Bitcoin? Uh, centered world
1: well I, I think you know most fundamentally it mm-hmm. it just strips that ability away mm-hmm. so it says i don't care you know what your economic debate is mm-hmm. what you know mm-hmm. whether you intellectually think that quote managing the the price of money on, for short-term stability mm-hmm. and whether you think it results mm-hmm. in long-term stability or not we're just going to take that ability away from mm-hmm. it. so yeah sorry but <laughs> you know we're now competing so oh. We, I think of it as before it was a more of a philosophical debate, mm-hmm. an intellectual debate. Mm-hmm. Back in the, you know, I don't, I mean, went back far f- further than this, but there was a time when the Austrians were essentially debating the Keynesians, mm-hmm. and essentially the Keynesians won, and then that became the monoculture. Mm. Um, but it was a debate. Mm. Now. With, with Bitcoin, mm-hmm. it is the polar opposite monetary systems that are competing with each other, and we're gonna see which one. Hmm.
0: Well, I, that, it's interesting that you bring up competition because it seems like what you're saying is that in order for sort of like the Keynesian system to win at all, they kind of need a monopoly. Is, is that
1: right? I would say that, I guess, monetary systems are monopolistic. Mm-hmm. So they probably don't coexist. Hmm so if one wins one's going to win mm-hmm. kind of categorically or or kind of, you know kind of in aggregate and then mm-hmm. that's going to eliminate the other so i do view it as i don't i don't necessarily say that that you know for keynesian to win it has to have a monopoly mm-hmm. but that that naturally if you're centralizing you know whether you have a keynesian view of economics or mm-hmm. you have a monetarist view of economics you're both um you know ultimately, probably for different reasons, supporting the centralization of me mm-hmm. um, it may be a derivative of you know arguing for you know on the Keynesian view, basically arguing you know if I was simplified, it's a lot more complicated than this, but mm-hmm. arguing that there's a role for government mm-hmm. in helping to essentially provide funding to an economy to help smooth out business cycles. Well, mm-hmm. you can't do that as the government ad infinitum mm-hmm. if you don't have a central bank that's derivatively financing the government. They may mm. not be doing it directly, but they're doing it implicitly. Mm. If you're a monetarist, you're basically saying, okay, there's some benefit to gradually expanding the money supply, but then once you open up that um, that Pandora's box, you know, it's like, well, what's the right number? Is it 1% or 2%? But then once you say, well, it's fundamentally good, then it results in QE. Mm. Um, so I think... The, the, the ultimate consequence of that is it's like it's less so, you know, you, a Keynesian or a monetarist needs a monopoly in order for their system to work, is that because m- money is monopolistic, mm. you know, kind of if if a certain monetary system is winning out for a period of time, mm. and, and, if, and if the money system is working, it is going to monopolize. Mm. Um, now that we have competing forms of money, mm. not— or, a competing form of money and mm-hmm. saying like Bitcoin's competing with the dollar that Bitcoin's mm-hmm. competing with the euro yen mm-hmm. yuan bolivar mm-hmm. peso um, that if somebody decides that they want to own Bitcoin mm. and that that is a better way to store for what they for of, their, of the value that they're saving what they put in a monetary medium mm. when they make that decision they're opting out of one monetary system and into another mm. and it doesn't happen necessarily all at once in terms of you know, I still own dollars and I own Bitcoin, but I'm identifying increasingly mm-hmm. that, that you know, for what I save in, in money, mm-hmm. a, a greater and greater share of it should be in mm-hmm. But at that point of that decision, you know, if I was to trade dollars for Bitcoin, the exact same number of dollars exists mm-hmm. as do Bitcoin in terms of like a secondary market mm-hmm. sale or trade, and whether it's me trading for dollars or trading for um, goods and services, that. I'm making the decision of putting a higher value on mm-hmm. one monetary name for, versus the other. As that wheel starts to get going, the value of a monetary network increases as more people join it mm-hmm. because there's more trading partners, there's mm-hmm. more people, that, there's more functional use for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, that it essentially cannibal, it, it's coming at a direct consequence, not mm-hmm. just not just at a derivative consequence. I'm mm-hmm. actively de- deciding, you know, to, to store in one versus the other. Mm-hmm. Well, the more people that you have. Shifting over to Bitcoin, the less people that are demanding dollars or euros or yen, Um, and ultimately causes that system to, you know, not just you know, there's not going to be a steady exist and both of kind of exist in parallel. They will for a period of time, but one will ultimately win out over the other. And what we're going to see is how many people, and, and they may not even know it or be conscious of it, but how many people choose to to store their money in a fixed supply currency versus one that's actively debased. It's just going to be an, um, an instinctive shift, you know, about a certain point. A lot of people today have, you know, not, I don't want to say a lot of people, but people today, you and I, we spend time thinking about it mm-hmm. actively. Mm. Most people aren't ever going to have to make that decision. They're just going to respond to price signals.
0: Mm. That's interesting. What what happens to all of this uh, financial infrastructure that's been built up uh, i think you were saying something like 16 percent of gdp we don't know if that's the right number or not but it's a significant part of the economy and you know as you suggested it's probably significantly bloated what happens to all of that like uh, like do governments continue bailing them out to or do they collapse on their own what 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 happens uh, as more of these people move and store value in bitcoin is
1: well, I think that first, I would say that one of the consequences of Bitcoin mm. will be a definancialization mm. of the economy. Mm. From from, and so if I was thinking about that conceptually, it would be there's this idea, and I think it's one of the greatest lies that's been sold, okay. which is you have to make your money grow. Uh-huh. You know, it's like <laughs> there, there there's industries built on that idea. That's right, right, yeah. and 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 a lot of that is built on this idea that that your money's the the dollar or Mm -hmm. any fiat currency, it's slowly deteriorating. So if your dollar is depreciating 2% a year and and you multiply that over a decade, 20%, two decades, 40%, that in order for you to have what you need at the end of two decades, you have to have made that money grow. If you just sit there Mm -hmm. in dollars, it's going to be worth 40% less when you're getting towards a retirement age. Mm. And so a whole industry is built up around, you know, how do you make your money grow? You invest them in financial assets, mm. you know, type of a world, rather than, say, take that money and invest in yourself mm. in terms of a skill that you, so mm. it's, and if I was to simplify it, it's like you create value in the world, you get paid money, and then you're, you know, system-wide or economy-wide or population-wide then told to invest that money in somebody else Mm. rather than Mm. and that in a world where your money is not depreciating 2% a year Mm -hmm. 20% over a decade over a decade you're going to the the incentive Mm. to just save in money that appreciates over time versus building off that assumption that it's going to to lose value Mm. will cause you know it will one reintroduce opportunity cost Mm. in a free market way and that the derivative consequence of that is that fewer people will then be Immediately taking their money and putting it at risk because that's essentially what's happening when mm. you know they don't think about it that way. They think about the stock market as so that's as liquid, uh-huh. and and so just the incentive structure alone will shift the inclination of people to take the money and and essentially the money is what you get when after you've taken risk and been compensated for it and mm-hmm. then perpetually taking risk. So mm. more people, fewer people. And, and to a less greater extent will be immediately plowing their money into stocks and bonds, it will cause the size of the financial system as a whole to shrink. Mm-hmm. Then to your question of well what, what happens to all those resources that are devoted mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. To, to banking and mm-hmm. essentially the economy yeah, I, I don't know, but holistically the economy needs to restructure. Mm-hmm. And and if we but if, but I think it's the exact same if we think about any advancement in any technology. Mm-hmm. Like if if um, it becomes easier, you know, if if technology advances in telecommunications. If it's doing its job, it should be de- demanding fewer of the resources of the overall economy, so that then a portion <laughs> of those resources can go and do some other function because mm. we've we've automated. Mm. Um, that if Bitcoin works, mm. which you know my perspective is at this point it's inevitable. That if we just came out on the other side where the, the financial sector and the banking sector was consuming 16% of the resource, it it's almost like a Success in Bitcoin dictates that that number will be far far smaller Mm. um, because it wouldn't provide a a step function kind of change innovation. But that if it is that, you know, again, don't know what the right number is, but maybe it's 3% of the resources in the economy or 5% or maybe Mm. it's 8 But it's just the same as restructuring of any economy. Like thinking about Mm. on a micro level, uh, we shift over from... um, Blockbuster to Netflix. Mm-hmm. Well, Blockbuster was a large employer, but now, the you know, theoretically that you know either it's different types of skill sets and resources, or it's fewer, but we can do- deliver the same type of service, but direct to your home. Well. Now all those people at Blockbuster need to go for new jobs. And they, yeah. they all individually look at the market and say, okay, well, where, based on the price signals and the incentive structure of the economy, do I go? And I think that's going to happen kind of on, you know, it's not just going to be confined to the to the banking sector, right? Mm. Like, I think that if, you know, pricing houses adjust because people can no longer get 2% mortgages for mm. 30 years, there's going to be probably a lot fewer people that are going and figuring out how to develop single families mm. or 70 you know story skyscrapers mm. so it's not just going to impact you know kind of one sector of the economy but overall the economy will have to restructure based on a new pricing mechanism that's probably providing at, at the onset it's probably going to kind of create some economic disruption um, but ultimately that's kind of natural or core to the to the function of an economy mm.
0: it's interesting that you brought up how the banking system kind of relies on a lot of people wanting to take risk. Um, and that they they sort of almost lie to them and tell them that they're not really taking risk by trying to make their money grow, that putting it in a stock market or bonds or whatever. That seems to be sort of juice that they get off of all of the risk taking starts to go away. Does that mean that we're more productive as a result? Like what are the consequences of all of this risk taking being sort of taken off the table I mean I, I guess like a Keynesian would say like okay there there's not as much money to fund startups and things like wouldn't that be a bad thing
1: well I would say that it doesn't prevent risk taking it mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. ensures that those that are risk-taking risk taking mm-hmm. risk are being compensated mm-hmm. right so one way to think about it would be you know if the free market was setting an interest rate mm-hmm. then and, and, and the interest rate should be dictated by the overall growth in an economy mm-hmm. that finds an equilibrium mm-hmm. to to reward those people. So, you know, somebody has money in their bank, and mm-hmm. all that money is being recycled through the economy, and they're mm-hmm. being, they're, you know, whether they're willingly taking risk actively, they're implicitly mm-hmm. taking it because somebody is rehypothecating it, and lending mm-hmm. out. If people basically had a gate mm-hmm. that said, "Oh, if you want my money, mm-hmm. you have to." provide me an opportunity and give me the share of economics that's mm-hmm. fair mm-hmm. then more people are essentially participating in the you know ultimately by creating a better savings mechanism more people are taking you know an active participation in in setting market interest rates so thinking about an equilibrium maybe the the equilibrium interest rate and there is no true kind of interest rate but just thinking in a micro world that's 8% somebody's sitting there and evaluating it well um, um, I'm for 8%, I'm not going to lend my money, but other people maybe will do. Mm-hmm. And then somebody may say, well, I'll pay you 9%. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I marginally make the decision to say, okay, well, if, if I'm going to take this risk, then, then 9% is fair. What's happening today is essentially for money that people have in their bank, you know, or, or maybe the best way to think about it is, if you ever went to anybody and asked them, would you lend your money mm-hmm. to somebody who wants to buy a house for 30 years at 2.5%? every single person would say no <laughs> but it happens all day long <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: right so and and that is ultimately to say what would be the fair market rate if individuals that were actually
0: mm-hmm.
1: bearing the risk mm-hmm. were pricing that mortgage mm. it would be far higher than 2% and it probably wouldn't be lent for 30 years mm-hmm. right so it, it's not to say that risk won't be taken and will just reintroduce the true opportunity cost of money mm. and will dictate that based on a more, an undistorted pricing mechanism, that naturally the risk and the mm-hmm. capital will go toward uh, the, the more productive mm. types of activities, the compensation will, structure will be more aligned, and that if somebody takes risk and loses money, it eliminates moral hazard. And mm. that's part of the kind of price setting mechanism and, and, and risk taking kind of productive function of an economy.
0: This reminds me of of what Andrew Jackson said about the central bank, which was (laughs) when you win, you make out with all the money. And when you lose, you get somebody to bail you out. That sounds kind of like how banking works, is that the people that are depositing with them are taking all of the risk, but they're the ones that make all of the profit. And what I, I think what you're saying is that a lot of that money, instead of going to these bankers, goes to the people that actually bore the risk, which are the people that lent the money.
1: Yeah and but but in this structure mm-hmm. most pe- people that mm-hmm. have their money in a bank mm-hmm. their their funds are being lent out mm-hmm. right fractional reserve banking and and there's nothing inherently wrong mm-hmm. about somebody attempting to fractionally reserve mm-hmm. it's just that if they do it poorly mm-hmm. and there's a run that that structure and all of the stakeholders in it the, the losses should be contained therein. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm a depositor at a bank and the bank has a certain amount of equity and they've lent money mm-hmm. out, and those pro- and the people that they lent money to did not achieve the the mm-hmm. returns that they expected to, that the consequences of that in a, in a in a free market would reside first in the the equity holders of the bank, and then second in the depositors of that mm-hmm. bank and if the depositors lose their money, they that bank's out of business, and they can mm. either decide not to enter into a fractional reserve scheme in the future or choose a better partner. Mm. Um, what exists in this world is that those kind of, the largest banks are consistently bailed out, which again, mm. introduces moral hazard, which screws up the entire mm. um, incentive structure. Mm. It'll, it It fosters people that are taking risk, that's essentially borne by you know mm-hmm. others, and it extends beyond just the four walls of a bank. It exton- extends to essentially private, like to what you were describing, privatized gains, mm-hmm. and and really even privatized gains that, that aren't shared with the depositors. Mm-hmm. It's more. It's almost like inherently um, exists within the the shareholders mm-hmm. and you know, the equity holders and and the, and the management of a, of the banking structure, um, and that when the shit storm comes hmm. then they're bailed out and they don't explicitly know they're going to be bailed out but because of the track record and the history the expectation is like you know the idea of too big to fail hmm. right like you know it didn't work because you know effectively the fed bailed out lehman brothers and then they they, they let or the treasury treasury and fed mm-hmm. combined and then they let lehman brothers fail they tried i think they tried to do that as a signal to say hey like you know, you're not necessarily gonna bail it out, but then they had to bail out all the other banks You know, which basically you know, they, they, they It was a sacrificial it, lamb. It was a sacrificial lamb and it was it was it was for naught because everybody else, you know, called their bluff. They're like, Oh mm. no, you can't let us all fail mm. type of a thing. So I think that ultimately coming back to Bitcoin, it's that if you have a fixed supply mm-hmm. currency. It doesn't say that the Fed can't exist, it doesn't say that fractional reserve can't exist, it just says if you want to bail out anybody in the future you're actually going to have to capitalize it Mm. and you're either going to have to tax people to do that or you know put money you know tax people and put money in actual bitcoin at the fed to perform that function but if it runs out it runs out Mm. Um, and and i think the natural consequences of that is that the bank bailouts don't exist Mm -hmm. um, and that Ultimately, the people that are taking risk are going to have to live with that risk. Mm. It's not going to necessarily result, or it will not result in no risk taking. Mm. It will just fundamentally restructure how risk taking is is pursued, and then the compensation structure for you know the various different constituents in the supply chain of mm. risk taking.
0: Mm. Interesting. I I never thought of uh, banking as a form of getting money off of risk taking, but who bears the risk and who gains is it it seems very often. I think you're right, there is a giant moral hazard. Do you see a place for banks in a Bitcoin world? Uh, Because you can kind of be your own bank, so uh, you know, assuming everything works out kind of how. You see it.
1: I think that there's going to be a very large consequence of Bitcoin, and that's mm-hmm. when I talk about how it's mm-hmm. definancializing the economy. Mm-hmm. So, it's not to say that debt won't exist, and it's not mm-hmm. to say that mm-hmm. the stock market won't exist, and that there won't be joint stock companies mm-hmm. or joint ventures that you know kind of benefit from pooling capital. Mm-hmm. I do think that in the future Bitcoin world, the size of that type of mm-hmm. activity will be far smaller. Mm. It's also not to say that the only function of a bank is capital allocation, though I do think that there is you know, maybe one th- way to think about it would be th- there's value to capital allocation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's happening in a, in a much larger way than it w- otherwise would if mm-hmm. the incentive structure of a, of a money was mm-hmm. more aligned with the person that's creating value and storing it. In it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that banks do not exclusively allocate capital. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, whether you think of, you know, there's a lot of different pieces in, in the value chain of helping move money around mm. and, and banks help facilitate. Now, Visa and MasterCard aren't banks, but they leverage the banking infrastructure to mm-hmm. help facilitate payments. Um, and that individuals are ultimately relying on their banks and Visa and MasterCard to help do that. And I don't necessarily know what exists. Kind of in the future Bitcoin world, mm. beyond kind of expecting those functions to be far smaller, there are still benefits, and probably more so in the Bitcoin world, to the benefits of trade and specialization. An individual, if we think about like, are individuals going to be relying on third parties in some functions and capacity to, to help you know, move and transfer Bitcoin around? Not mm. everybody has your skill set mm. to be able to code your own wallet, and like <laughs> you know, so it's unclear where that you know stops and starts. Uh-huh. Um, people. You know, if they if they are being their own bank, they're still relying on a third party to provide. You know, in most cases, mm-hmm. to provide them with a hardware wallet. In order mm-hmm. to do that, mm-hmm. uh, and that's one function of specialization. So they are their own bank, but they're relying on a third party to provide them that device. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in terms of the context of, of what we're doing at chain, we're trying to build kind of, you know, I would say mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not a bank, uh, but we're trying to build a financial services platform that we think adds value to the, the structure of Bitcoin, where individuals can hold their own keys. But one of the things that we run up against, principally, when they're thinking about that decision point of holding their own keys versus using a Coinbase is you know, if I have a material percentage of my wealth, mm-hmm. am I going to lose it <laughs> and, and being uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. and helping them not only have access to technology, but being there as a partner, should they ever have issues in the future? Mm-hmm. And then the value that's extracted by our one key being a third of theirs, such that mm-hmm. if they do lose something that we can help them so that they're mm-hmm. like perennially afraid of basically being their own failure point. Mm-hmm. So again, it's impossible to predict where that kind of the the function of banks stops mm-hmm. beyond knowing or at least having a very clear view in my in my view that the banking sector as a whole will be far smaller it may be doing different things mm-hmm. um, kind of in, in adding different value given that, that bitcoin is a fundamentally different mm. type of money um, and that lending will be you know not necessarily in terms of well Probably far fewer people will be borrowing and lending, mm-hmm. and that far fewer people will be just making money and putting it into a 401k and buying 30 different stocks that they have no idea what they're buying. Mm. Um, but that those functions themselves will still exist. It will just probably be more direct risk taking of indirect assets.
0: Mm. Do you see any downsides to a uh, Bitcoinized banking sector? I think that there is a fundamental. There's, a, there's a probably
1: a, a, a risk that I think is often associated, associated with banking mm-hmm. that extends more towards law and Congress, which mm-hmm. is financial privacy. Mm-hmm. So there, there's certainly um, mm-hmm. a consideration around kind of AML KYC, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, if I was thinking about balancing mm-hmm. security considerations that that the privacy and is part of the equation, hmm. right? And and then you would say, okay, well, is that something that's systemic to banks, or you know, would I look at it as, if not for say like AML KYC rules, would this service add value to some some you know someone and something? Oh. And by not providing it. You know, kind of where do you find that balance? Mm. Um, And so I do think that there's certainly benefits to specialization Mm. um, for, you know, whether it's somebody providing a hardware device. Because if I, you know, I could say, oh, I don't know somebody's balance if I just send them a hardware device, but I know that they have Bitcoin now. Mm. Or I, you know, Mm. and and in the future, we're going to know that everybody has Bitcoin Mm. because everyone you know, I, I do have a view that, that Bitcoin's monopolistic. So, there's nothing that stops from a court from, you know, going to an individual and saying, "Hey, turn over your hardware wallet, your hardware <laughs> wallet, or disclose your addresses." Uh-huh. It's just changing where the decision point is. So, I, mm-hmm. I, I do think that there's risk. I think ultimately, Bitcoin fundamentally is going to change far more than just our monetary system. Mm-hmm. That there's going to be economic consequences. It's going to change how people think mm-hmm. about a lot of these problems and that, that ultimately kind of the requirements on the banking system may be different when you're living in a world with 300 million Bitcoiners rather than 300 million. Mm.
0: So interesting. And that sounds like another whole episode, like how Bitcoin changes, how we think about politics and things like that. But let's get back to the banking industry and what you see. What do you hope happens long term with Bitcoin with respect to this industry in
1: fundamentally, Bitcoin's not, quote, doing its job if it's mm-hmm. not shrinking mm-hmm.
0: the sector. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think, and I think that's true of any, you know, again, I think we talked about it before, mm-hmm. but any, anything, mm-hmm. you know, like any... Any, any innovation. Any yeah. innovation should consume less human resources. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, that's probably an oversimplified mm-hmm. way to do it. If if somebody dev- develops a, a new technology, because I, I would think about it as like, Bitcoin is a step function change innovation mm-hmm. in, um, in a monetary medium. Mm-hmm. You can look at it today as saying, well, more people are working on Bitcoin. So is the financial sector not still growing today? Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, because it eliminates a lot of infrastructure that otherwise wouldn't need to exist in the long term, if you think about it, kind of mm-hmm. the financial system broadly, it, it will and should. Um, when any new industry kind of kind of gets, starts to get stood up, then, you know you could look at it and say well it's actually consuming more resources but it's because you have to develop the infrastructure before mm. the infrastructure can actually be leveraged so I wouldn't say that's my my goal of like what mm-hmm. happens to the industry it's more that that's it, it's a natural consequence of, of, of what derivatively should happen if you know if it's worth it it will and again I don't I don't necessarily think of it as a goal because I kind of mm-hmm. I think about Bitcoin as I don't you know Bitcoin as monetary medium is going to fundamentally change everything I'm not you know, it's mm-hmm. it's like the, pre, the pretense of knowledge where it's like, I don't, you know, it's kind of like k- chaos. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know that this is going to be good. Mm-hmm. I can't predict how it's going to change people's behavior because it's essentially going to uh, strip away something of, of power that exists in central banks and, mm-hmm. and ultimately results in financial engineering. But, you know, what that future world looks like is impossible to predict because, the the distribution of the monetary capital in the world would be fundamentally different in a world in sound of sound money
0: what are you working on now to make that a reality and how how do you hope to capitalize
1: one i have a fundamental view that Mm. the most important thing in the value chain of bitcoin is keys Mm. um and that The more keys that exist, I almost think about it like as Mm -hmm. the Second Amendment, where Mm -hmm. like the more guns that exist, the less likely there is for like a tyrannical government Mm -hmm. to um, oppress Mm -hmm. millions of people. And that if more keys exist in the world, then the ability for the Bitcoin network to to be Mm co-opted is, you know, kind of deteriorates, you know, kind of correlated to to the number of keys, because ultimately what that means... uh, you know, that's speaking at a system level, but ultimately, what it means on an individual level is when we were having that conversation about you know, a bank, whether you know it or not, or lending mm-hmm. out your money, willfully or not, it's at it, it's gone. I don't I don't look at savings as you know exclusively on the on the monetary sense because mm-hmm. I think of it as like you know, money is just a tool to accumulate other capital. But if you have control of your money, and that mm-hmm. that maybe that is a goal, which mm-hmm. is that more people kind of put those gates up mm-hmm. so that Not to prevent risk taking, but that if you want my monetary capital to go take some risk in the future, you have to ask for my permission
0: and compensate me. Yeah, and compensate.
1: Yeah, and that that if that key exists, then the only way for you to get my capital is for me to voluntarily, Mm -hmm. you know, provide it to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that in that world, you're ultimately going to have, you know, I believe more people more investing in themselves, and you'll have a, a, you know not just a more decentralized risk taking function, but it will be you know, less big companies, more small companies, mm. more localized economies. Um, and so my goal, you know, kind of individually, what I'm working on now is helping to build a company that helps enable more keys existing, not knowing 100% what that future world is going to look like, but that if we're helping people secure their Bitcoin better, that then when, if we're providing a financial service mm-hmm. or, or banking like service it's basically then being able to go to those clients and say hey we have this opportunity would mm-hmm. you would you like to do it this mm-hmm. is the rate and, and for those clients that that want to participate in that capital allocation function they they, they can or if we're helping people facilitate lightning payments whether it's through mm-hmm. open source applications or a private application you know in the future which I expect us to do that we are helping deliver value to people in a way that not just allows them to, to feel more secure over their Bitcoin, mm. but that when it become, when it comes to the decision point of either taking risks or moving their money around the world, mm-hmm. they're in control of that and that the, the incentive structure between us as Unchained and our clients will always be fundamentally more aligned if the foundation mm-hmm. is built on us.
0: That's, that's so interesting. I, I never thought about control of keys as ultimately leading to better or more just value capture because i think you're right like a lot of the value capture happens in the financial system in the banking sector rather than at the end point uh of the people that are actually risking things so um, yeah if you if you think about the
1: benefits mm -hmm. to like think about a bank Mm -hmm. and think about the constituents in that bank Mm -hmm. you've got depositors sometimes you have debt Mm -hmm. on banks Mm -hmm. then you have equity Mm -hmm. and then you have management Mm -hmm. depositors Mm -hmm extract the least amount of the value out of the value chain and mm. they should get the most
0: mm. the keys are sort of central to making sure that they do because then they have the gate or uh, yes yeah. it's, it's,
1: it's almost like what if in the in the Bitcoin world mm-hmm. you should you should never live in a world if you're just if your expectation is I just want to save money mm-hmm. in Bitcoin you should never be presented with the option of being forced into a world where unbeknownst to you your Bitcoin could be Mm rehabbed because that is like something that you should be voluntarily opting into to say okay I want my Bitcoin to be Mm -hmm. you know capable of being lent or not Mm -hmm. if you were thinking about kind of like a a traditional depositor, how people think about their deposits they think about their bank having Mm -hmm. their money when Mm -hmm. in reality it's not there it's been lent out to somebody else Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that probably certain people say why should people when they they think about paying people deposits at banks Mm -hmm. why, why should you get Compensated for not taking risk. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that consistently comes up within mm-hmm. like the the Keynesian world. And it's like no. In order to get the money, you already took risk. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to perpetually take risk. And if you are asked to, then you should be voluntarily opting into that. Mm-hmm. And if you're securing your keys, by definition, if you want to give it to somebody at that point in time when someone's presented to you with an opportunity, you are you're opting in rather than perpetually taking risk as a function of some other party unbeknownst to you being a black box blending out. The oh trusted third party in yeah. other words.
0: Yeah. All right. So we don't have that much more time, so let me ask you the two questions I want to ask everyone that does this podcast. Five years from now, what's your best and worst case scenario for Bitcoin?
1: There will be two more happenings. <laughs> uh, that maybe let's just say that's the worst case. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, like I, I can, you know, it's like the assumes uh, the Bitcoin network is uh-huh. is still functioning. Um, which I expect it to be. It's it's difficult for me to see a world that within five years a billion people don't own.
0: A billion. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot.
1: Or maybe, maybe that's a little bit aggressive. Maybe that's a positive case. I, it's just knowing how it, I, I I key off on a few assumptions. Mm. Money's a necessity. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin's a better form of money, mm. and at the 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 derivative of those two things is that whether people know it or not, they're going to be like having to seek it out.
0: Mm. Um, because and, they're incentivized to
1: because they're incentivized to mm. and it's like a core set of like how people transact mm. in the world and like mm. that there are there there are benefits to trade and specialization and that's really what money and a monetary network helps facilitate I also know and work under the assumption that mm-hmm. m- knowledge distributes exponentially mm. so when one person figures out Bitcoin they're mm-hmm. they, not just because they see the benefit personally but they're naturally going to go tell five to p- people to ten people. You know, yeah. like that's just, it's thinking about knowledge distributing on the Internet. And this is maybe most, one of the most important, let's just say it's the most important knowledge distribution event in our lifetime. And will be practically for everybody. It's not unrealistic that a billion people will have big It's not like a minimum,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: that that's certainly a possibility.
0: Um, I, I guess that would be your positive case for five years. Yeah. All right, so 20 years from now, how do you think Bitcoin affects banking 20 years from now? I mean, you, you already said it's going to be smaller, and, uh, and you already gave the caveat that you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But what, what's your most probabilistic scenario there?
1: Speaking of my own book, m- banks look more like Unchained than they look mm-hmm. like J.P. Morgan, okay. um, that there are a lot more. Mm-hmm. And are a lot. Each of them are kind of, in aggregate, a lot smaller. Mm. That 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 is my expectation. That there still will be banks, mm. and that there will be free market competition. So there will be people who attempt to to fractionally reserve banks, mm. and that there'll you know, be others that try different models. But that everything will keep coming back to kind of a world existing where risk taking is much more direct mm. and. Not necessarily in the sense of one to one, but that you know, kind of the uh, that there's an opt-in, you know, and that that opt-in is forced by keys rather than kind of unwillfully being, you know, kind of co-opted in. Mm-hmm. I do th- I do think of it as a, it's not a hope as a, uh, that it's inevitable that the sector will be smaller, mm-hmm. um, and that the consequence of that will be because when we're thinking mo- in terms of monetary units of the size of you know 16 of GDP, that's just it's freeing up a lot of individuals to be going in pursuing other interests instead and, of investment banking <laughs> instead of investment banking. and that that world where you had say 13 you know millions of people doing you know thinking about solving other problems mm-hmm. um that that world will be you know kind of i don't want to say better world that's too generic but that the, it will free up human capital to be solving problems that other humans have in a
0: hmm. So a shrinking of banking, leading to more people doing more productive things that make civilization better. I like it. I like it. Yeah. That. Thank you, Parker, for uh, doing this podcast with me. Is there any anywhere that uh, my audience can find you?
1: They can find me on Twitter at Par- Parker A Lewis. I write a, um, a article series on Bitcoin called "Gradually Then Suddenly." So, mm. if somebody's new to Bitcoin and looking to learn, they can they can. Uh, Kind of read up there on our blog on Unchain-Capital.com and if anybody's looking to, to learn about multi-sig or kind of interested in seeing what we can do for them on uh, Bitcoin financial services side to, to reach out on Twitter um, or they can reach out to us on our website. But uh, you're, this is an open invitation that anytime you want to record, if you want to record in person here in Austin, you can always use Unchain Capital's office. So.
0: Well, I, I, might, I might need to take you up on that. Uh, thank you. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. As he said, Parker can be found at Unchained-Capital.com and Parker A. Lewis on Twitter. Until next time, fiat the lendest.